you remember when you started your career? Was there somebody who maybe mentored you or guided you, somebody who gave you a chance? I know without a doubt, I only have the career I have now because I was guided, because I was given a chance. But sometimes that guidance was a bit harsh. I needed it. Uh, but it was guidance by people further along than me. The chances that I got to prove myself, the chances that I had to work with people and in productions above my skill set helped me rise to the occasion and really accelerate my career path. Now, many workplaces have this kind of structure built into them. However, in the kill or be killed world of TV and radio, it is a rare thing to find. However, today's guest and one of Australia's most visible and successful stand-up comedians is indeed one of the precious few people that does this. You know Will Anderson, either from the days on The Glass House, on Triple J, Gruen, Question Everything. His legacy in the Australian podcast space is unquestioned. TOEFOP has been running since about 30 seconds after podcasts were invented. Willosophy is consistently one of the greatest interview podcasts available. And all along the way, throughout Will's career, he has left a legacy of young performers, producers, and writers who are able to work at the top of this game, sometimes years before they would otherwise get that chance, giving those people an enormous boost in their careers. I've been lucky to call Will a friend for a little while now. He is as good a man as they come, so much so that when I asked him to come on the podcast to talk about his new book, it's called I'm Not Fine, Thanks, his first response was, brilliant, I'll be over to your house next Tuesday morning. So you're going to hear you're going to hear what happened when Will Anderson crammed his very very lanky frame into my tiny little box of a pod cave here and I went one on one with the absolute man of Australian stand up. But first we're going to play some ads. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is PlushCare. PlushCare is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number smart beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number limited edition smart bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. We're so judgmental often about the way that people receive information, but it's very luxurious to be a person who thinks and talks about these things all day long, right? Like most people don't have that luxury. They go to their job you know, all day long. And then they have half an hour a day where they're like flicking on their Instagram or their Twitter or their TikTok and they're getting whatever messages they're getting out of that. We, we often end up hating the person who believes the dumb thing without going, this is the, it's the fucking system that has been set up that is like 
the incentive is to mislead these people, you know? Like, yes, as consumers, we have to be more active in the media we consume and how we consume it and, you know, verifying whether it's true or not. But but the truth is that the entire system is set up against us, against us being able to do that. And you are just, yeah, you're the boy pissing into the ocean, hoping you can turn back the tide. That is comedian, podcaster, TV presenter, writer, producer, and all-round legend, Will Anderson. And this is Osher Ginsburg, Better Than Yesterday. G'day and welcome. This is Osher Ginsburg, Better Than Yesterday, the podcast that's here to make your day today better than yesterday. Something you hear on this show and every show will do just that. And there's episodes going all the way back to 2013. Three times a week I'm here, Mondays, Wednesdays, and Fridays. I'm Osher. I'm a podcaster. I'm a TV host. I'm a dad. I'm a stepdad. I'm a, a Pilates reformer guy at the moment. George is studying Pilates instruction. She's studying to be an instructor of Pilates, that's it. So we have a reformer in our house at the moment. That's amazing. So I'm on that thing, rehabbing my hip. I'm back on the bicycle. I'm on the motorbike again. Oh, so nice to be back on the motorcycle. And I've got a tummy full of vegan gluten-free pancakes that I just ate with my wife. Just the two of us. It's beautiful. Because um, I'm recording this on a day when we had time to scoot away and, and do that without the kids. However, you're listening to this on a Monday, and this afternoon, I will be at the Bondi Bowling Club with Allegra Spender. The event is called Politics in the Pub. Uh, well, Bolo. I'd love to see you down there. Allegra's been on the show before. She uh, was kind enough to come down and join us the other day at Parliament House in Canberra when I was uh, doing some lobbying for the uh, good of the cycling community, and she's invited me to come and um do this event with her, which I'm really thrilled about because she is actually putting forward that we have a citizen jury about campaign funding, which I am well and truly a big fan of, as you know. So just a quick heads up as well, speaking of events, there are going to be tickets on sale in a few days for the live shows that we have lined up Friday nights in Sydney from late January, and things are looking very, very good for Melbourne. It looks like we've got a spot at the uh, Melbourne International Comedy Festival. I cannot even believe it. So watch this space. Uh, I'll let you know. There is a mailing list somewhere. I think, the, yeah, the link is in the show notes and is on my link tree for the mailing list if you want to be informed of that. Uh, you can also find me on Discord to chat. If you want, the link is in the show notes as well. I'm on Discord all the time. Now, look, I appreciate that over the years I've asked you to come and see me on Twitter, on Facebook, on Instagram, wherever. Well, frankly, I'm just fucking sick of the algorithms. So uh, Discord or email it is. If you shoot me a DM on anything else, you'll get an auto response that says, hey, email me or find me on Discord. <laughs> so let me tell you about my guest today. Will Anderson is a household name here in Australia. He is a, a stand-up comedian at his core. However, his big heart, his endless compassion and empathy make him a vital voice in our society. Everything he does, his stand-up, the books he writes, the TV he creates, the legendary podcasts he produces, they have kindness, empathy, and compassion at their center, all wrapped up in a blistering sense of humor. He's an extraordinarily smart man. He really is. And he's got more time for those who are coming up than 
nearly anyone that I've met. I find Will Anderson just so inspiring. I first met him when he was doing breakfast on Triple J. We both had quite long hair at the time. And I'm grateful to still call Will a friend. There was a time, I'm not going to lie, he won't mind me saying this. There was a time before I got sober when I was, I was kind of shitty at how great a career Will Anderson had. But that is because my ego didn't want to accept that I had the career I had because I didn't put the kind of work into my career that Will put in. <laughs> Simple as that. I got sober about three or four years before Will moved to Los Angeles where I was living and he and I spent a bit of time together there. And once my ego stepped aside and I could see how his relentless work ethic had created for him this incredible life and incredible career, I took a long, hard look at myself and fuck me, guys, I put my bloody skates on. If you hear me ever talk about being busy, if you hear me telling you about new projects I'm creating, that is all traceable back to when I allowed myself to have a jealousy-free look at Will Anderson's work and his career. I was in awe. I was so happy for him. And I wanted that kind of happiness for myself. He's such a wonderful man. And if you're not listening to TOFOP, uh, the podcast that he's been doing with Charlie Clawson for oh, well over a decade, uh, start at the most recent episode and work backwards until you begin to get uncomfortable. Because like any of us, Will and Charlie, look, uh, over time, um, uh, they kind of, like anybody, they grew over time, like you and me, we both grew over time. And the early episodes might, they might even be much for Will and Charlie to listen to uh, again. The first time I was on Willosophy, actually, I kept having to excuse myself in the middle of the record because I was taking phone calls about lining up uh, the breakfast radio gig that I eventually did in Brisbane. Those phone calls that I was taking that afternoon happened because I saw Will had something. I saw how he got that something and I wanted something the same for myself. It was a beautiful moment. He was actually, he was offering me commentary and encouragement from the side. Ask him about this. Make sure you get that. It was pretty dope having, having Will Anderson coach your radio contract negotiations, to be honest. Will is a, is, a, is a brilliant writer. I'm grateful that he's actually put this writing together because he writes very, very well. The book's called I'm Not Fine, Thanks. It's his brand new book. It's out right now. And Will specifically instructed me to not read this book, which is uncommon for a podcast guest. He just said, no, 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 I'll just come over and, and we're going to have a chat. And I'm so grateful that he did. We are lucky to have Will Anderson in our world. We're lucky to have all the people that Will Anderson has brought into our world in our world. We're lucky for all he's done for us in changing the way we do. We look at politics, the way we look at advertising, the AFL, Batman, even Russell Crowe. Enjoy this conversation here in my house, in this very room, with Will Anderson. How are you, Will? <laughs> <laughs> you know what the thing is, Osh? You're better than that. Um, uh, when you thanks write... for, okay, thanks for coming over, Will. Yeah, thank, yeah, thank you, Osh. Nobody, no, not many people have come over, like since we moved into this house, the only, there's now two people that I've done a live in-person mm. podcast with, not remotely, and it's you and Hamish Blake. Well, I don't go anywhere for anyone. So you t you should you should take this as the highest of all compliments Mate, because I, do. I like am constantly saying can I do it from home and th th this is the world that we now live in. Part of it is because I'm super conscious about the fact that I don't know if your listeners are aware of this. Uh, that COVID isn't over. It is. Yeah. It is still going, and because the world has moved on and most people aren't 
COVID safe anymore. They don't yeah. care about it, you know. Um, and I am still super conscious of it because I have a whole bunch of people who rely on me yeah. for their employment. If I yeah. get sick, it's not just that I you know, you know, miss my job, but you know, 30, 40, 50 other people who rely on me weekly yeah. also are affected by that. So I, that's a heavy weight on my shoulders and I try to do the right thing every day and I'm spending about 120 bucks a week on rats. And, yeah. Uh, but I, I, I just want to do everything that I can possibly do. Yeah. But I knew two things. A, I hadn't seen your new house and I wanted to come and visit you in person. And secondly, I knew that you are also, you know, very aware and conscious of these things. We work so, in this in we work in an industry where exactly that would there there's not many other industries where oh, okay that that person like you can sub out a mm. surgeon, you can sub out an accountant, you can sub mm. out an airline pilot, but the show which is currently in production that you're on, like if you're not in it, mm. There's no show. Well, I'm the creator, the executive producer, and the host. <laughs> so if I can't go into the office that week, it does uh, put a little bit of a dent in production. And particularly, you know, question everything, which is the show that we're doing at the moment. It's a new show, you yeah. know, so that we're still, you know, if it was a show like Gruen that is, you know, 15 years into its cycle, th th we literally could find somebody yeah. else to sit in for a week and fill that role. But when you're still trying to, be a ringmaster, and yeah. particularly that's my role on, on QE, is to to be the ringmaster so that these newer performers, these emerging performers, yeah. can have an opportunity to put a show together, to yeah. take me out of that, both in a leadership role during the week, but also on the day of filming. Yeah. Like, it really does have disastrous flow-on consequences <laughs> for everybody else. So I'm trying to be as, yeah. you know, super paranoid about all those things that I possibly can be. But at the same time, I knew. <laughs> I, I said to you this morning, I said, I, I got up early. I did a rat. My yeah. last one I had in the house too. Yeah, all right. My precious last rat. So I'll, I'll have to go and buy some new ones. I'll, give you, I'll tell you what, I'll give you this one. There's one left in that box. <laughs> it's all no, yours mate, for no, you, you the next need, thing you've got to you do. You might need that for retirement. That's like... <laughs> stockpiling toilet paper these days and uh, yeah well there's 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 two kinds of people last last christmas people who are like how am i gonna go on holiday i can't get any rats and mm. i bought mine six weeks ago didn't you read the news mm. yeah. <laughs> I'm, I'm the second guy i'm the second guy who's like okay that's coming like it was written mm. it, 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 it was pretty fucking clear and ebay or amazon i can't remember how i bought it, it was like Rup! or just like what's that we're gonna need a bunch of these and it's sure enough <laughs> Yeah. I, I'm one of those people that I've always been terrible at. Uh, so when you're on a production, you know, they yeah. would they would pay for my, I mean, at, these days they pay for a driver so that I don't have to like get into a cab or an Uber, you yeah. know, again, for COVID reasons. Yes, exactly. But in the old days, I would just get in a cab or an Uber. And they, of course, they'd be like, keep your receipt or we'll set you up an account and you can charge work for these journeys. And I would never do that. I was just the person I was like, that's too much. And I, it's fine. I'm earning enough money and I'll just like pay for my transport myself. I'm not going to bother with any of these sort of things. But I will say the one thing that I do hit them up for every week is, you got any more rats? Yeah. <laughs> can you just can you just go into my dressing room, please, and fill up my bag with rats? Oh, look, at, without a doubt. And and this we all, like we had to figure out how to do it, you know, mm. because no one had ever done a production. Uh, we were making we we're making a TV show about people making out mm. all the time. <laughs> you know, there's no 1.5 meters. Yeah. You know, so we had to like, how do we possibly keep this safe? And uh. we were kind of inventing it. As we went along, we were running the protocols as as we went along. But, it, you know, it's interesting you mentioned, because um, I've got this, I'm trialing a new format next Friday night. Um, by the time this airs, it'll have mm -hmm. happened. It went great. 
Pardon? I, I heard it went great. I heard it went great. Yeah. But the idea of like just fucking start, you know, and that when you're trying a new format, like Question Everything, for example, it's never been on air before and it gets commissioned with like, we can see the idea and I don't know if you did a pilot or not. It was like, well, okay, there's a pilot. Even if you did a pilot, it's like, there's a pilot. When we do it for real, we'll tweak this, this, this. But the tweaking keeps going until you're like season two, season three. And that's when you start to really build those systems where people can slot in. But the, the idea that something's perfect when it gets on TV, I just kind of like been really thinking about this. Like if you wait until something's perfect, it'll never fucking go. All right. Just get it as good as you can get it. And then you'll figure the rest out. And it's just so important to just fucking start. Yeah, but do as so. It's really interesting what you say, and I've got an insight into this with the process that we went through with question everything. So, when I envisaged the show, like when I created it, the idea was I had really, I wanted to make something. It was in the first year of COVID, yeah. the pandemic shut down, and obviously a lot of work had gone away from comedians and. I was very aware that people who were in the privileged part of the industry that I was in, you know, I still had television jobs. I still had ways to yeah. earn a living during that time. I had ways to adapt. And I also knew that the truth of it is that if my career went away forever, like if comedy never came back after the pandemic, because at some stages there was that thought, at yeah. least that thought experiment of like, will it come back? Or we'll, at least we'll never will be it, able to be in a room yeah. of 100 people again ever. Will it ever happen, yeah. right? Dinner parties, like, over. Maybe you can be in a big theatre where they have proper you know, air filtration mm. systems and they, you know, enforce masks and they have temperature tests. But like those starting out rooms that are, you know, completely, yeah. you know, this little tiny the room. Where of they, comedy. Exactly. Yeah. Jam all these like strangers yeah. into a room and get them to expel fluids at each other, you know, for three hours is mm. not really a safe condition. Yeah. And I wanted to create something. I, the idea was for the show to be a coming out party. I wanted to create something where these young comedians could get on TV and I envisaged this idea we'd have this big, you know, studio audience and they would get to yeah. you know, maybe perform to eat more people in that audience than they were performing to in their everyday life. Yeah, yeah. And, you know, that was the idea behind the show yeah. and, or at least the motivation for me putting together the show. And then first week of our production last year, first week of us going into making this brand new show was the first week of the Sydney lockdown. So oh, yes. from us starting production yeah. through to us filming the eight episodes that was the first season, that yeah. was all done during the Sydney lockdown, which meant we had members of our team that never met each other. Wow, we yeah. had members of our team that were in different countries who were going to travel back to Australia for the show to be in the office who then couldn't travel back to Australia yeah. who were working online the entire time yeah. then we had comedians we were get, like the idea was we'll get comedians from all over australia and we'll bring them together in this celebration suddenly we couldn't bring comedians from interstate but not just that we couldn't bring comedians from different local government areas of Sydney. Yeah, that's right. Our head writer, James Colley, we had to get an exemption from the government, like a proper exemption from the government to get him to come into the office from the suburb that he lived in during the pandemic. And, and we had a map on our wall and it had all the various local government areas of Sydney and which comedians lived in the Excellent. local government areas. And each time one of them got shut down, we would just have to put a cross through that local Fucking government area. Hell. And it was coming closer and closer to the inner west. And as a TV show, like with comedians on it, if we had lost the inner west, <laughs> we would have lost the war. So we had to make this show yeah. like with no audience, yeah, right, with comedians who – weren't doing gigs, yeah. like the majority of them, some of them we would have people come in and say, you're the first people we've talked talk to this week, yeah. right? 
So they're not even like, you know, like match fit as a comedian. Yeah. But here's the bit that you'll appreciate the most as someone who makes television. So the way that, so I'll tell you how the show works now and compare it to last year. Yeah. So during the day, I do four rehearsals. So like we put together, you know, the spine of the show and I do four rehearsals. So I go in, I do my first rehearsal. Jan isn't there. Jan, my co-host, Jan Fran. Uh, she isn't there for the first rehearsal. James Colley, the head writer and I. Yeah sit in those two seats and we have just three people from our production team sit in the panelist chair. That's your first rehearsal. That one's for the studio, for the crew, yeah. making sure, you know, we know where the clips play, where the cameras go, you know, all those sort of things. Second rehearsal, we invite what we call fourth chairs. So they are younger comedians who aren't ready to do the show yet, but we want to give them an opportunity to get used to being in a TV yeah, studio, yeah. like get experience of being in there. And we run the show as if we were doing the show. So your fourth chairs are the uh, the Survivor tr trial team. They're the ones <laughs> who, when yes. for immunity, and then it cuts, and we just mm. see feet and hands. Mm -hmm. Who are and I know one of these people. When they got offered the job, they're like, "Oh fuck yeah, I'm doing mm. that." Yeah. And they're the people that their test only the job on Survivor is to test the trials and test the ways around them and test ways that they can be gamed. And so that's essentially what mm. you've created. Well, imagine, to add on to that though, imagine if those people were people who also one day wanted to be on the show. Oh, I'm sure so they have, yes. So that's what we have. We yeah. have a bunch of like newer comedians or comedians who don't have much experience doing panel shows, yeah. they come in and do the show. That's sick, man. So Jan yeah. isn't in that one either. James and I do that one as well. The first panel, we yeah. like, have comedians. But we run it as if, Normally we tape about 60 minutes for the show, 28 and a half go to air. In those we tape, we run more like 40 minutes. Like it's yeah. a tighter version, but yeah. it's still run it as if yeah. we're doing the show. Give them an experience. Third rehearsal, Jan comes in and she, like then we do a new panel, a new panel of new comedians come in. So, so we do the fourth, more fourths? More fourths. I love it. So again, The reserve so, bench is not is getting cold. There's yeah. not enough people sitting on it. So That's we're amazing. Ru we're running about like... Yeah, somewhere between six to nine new comedians through the afternoon, giving yeah. them a chance to do the show. And then finally we do like a rehearsal that like, you know, is we normally have a couple of our writers sit in for the final rehearsal. And yeah. so for Jan and I. So that's your day. Yeah. Fantastic. By the time I get to the night and we bring in our actual guests, I've I've actually done the show four times during yeah. the day. I've seen it played with other people. I've got to work with these new comedians. It's yeah. incredible. I love every bit of that process of the day. Yeah. Last year, <laughs> what we did was, <laughs> because we couldn't have anyone in, yeah. right? You can't invite anyone in because no. we had to work in a COVID bubble. Yeah. The only people who could come in were members of our team who were already, like, cleared to be members of our team. Yeah. <laughs> Everyone who's been tested. But this is the best bit. We realized that the only chance that we had of getting a laugh from anybody on the night is if the crew, like the camera people or whatever, laughed. Yes. So what we wouldn't do is rehearse any of the jokes. So yeah. we would have these scripts that looked like CIA redacted documents. I love like it. big black lines yeah. over all the jokes. So yeah. all we would rehearse is setups yeah. and like cues for clips, but none of the jokes. And I so it. I wouldn't even get a rehearsal during the day. Literally, you'd just be going live with the jokes yeah. on the night in the hope that Larry on camera three might shake the camera a little. So I love Larry. I used to well. work with Larry. Larry's awesome. Larry's such a good guy. TV is TV is such a small industry that on Masked Singer season four, I'm working with two guys on ped cams, on the, the cameras mm. that you they have the big three wheels and a big steering wheel yeah. around them. 
who were there on my very first day of Channel V. It's mm-hmm. such a refined skill set. But I know exactly what you're saying and what people may not appreciate about someone who does your job. Say you're going to do Melbourne International Comedy Festival. You've got 30 nights. It's a 1,200-seater. It's fucking massive. You will go out for the month, six weeks, eight weeks before running those setups and punches, setups and punches, tweak, tweak, timing, timing, bit more here, bit more on that word, bit more on this. And like, so to only have three goes before the night is that's, that's pretty cool. I mean, three is enough. Yeah. Zero is not enough. Zero is not enough. (laughs) But I always, I I like, as I just, you know, cameramen are amazing Uh, and camera, camera people are amazing. I always, you know, brilliant cameramen and women over my career. But if you, if you get a laugh out Mm. of someone who's seen fucking everything and everyone, and I'm just another person on, in front of their camera to them, if you get a laugh out of them, like that is better than a Logie because they've really, truly seen and heard everything well and they've certainly seen all my tricks because most of the crew at the abc like some of the people genuinely who work on our show now have been working with me since i appeared as a young kid on good newsweek they were the camera people at good newsweek at the abc they became yeah the camera and crew for the glass house they've been the camera and crew for gruen and now they're the camera and crew for question everything so like there is nothing they've heard the story that I tell everyone where I warn the guests on the panel about, hey, please don't read along with the auto cue. Yeah. And then I tell them the story about, you know, we had Jason Donovan on the glass house. And not only did he read along with the jokes on the auto cue, but halfway through one of the jokes, he leaned in and said, This is a good one. So <laughs> they've heard me tell that story probably <laughs> 300 times, but they laugh along like it's a fresh story every time. God bless them. <laughs> oh, that's, that's, that's lovely. That's so. That's so nice. You you wrote another book, Will. Like of all the things that you do, you've got more podcasts than I can count. You have this extraordinary stream of output that you're kind of committed to every week, and you're thrown enough time to write another book in there. Mm. Um, and I want to ask you around creating the book because you've written books before, but. I don't know if you were doing as much podcasting the last time you wrote a book. No, I yeah. no. I mean, the, the, I, yeah. the, the two books that I wrote previously, and I mean, I did write them, but uh, 2006 and maybe 2009, right. I think it was. So Survival of the Dumbest was 2006. Yeah. Still sells because occasionally I get a little royalty check for about eight dollars. <laughs> yeah, you know, just in case anyone's wondering, no one in Australia is buying a house off their book royalties unless no. you're Peter Fitzsimons. Like literally nobody. The premise of uh, Survival of the Dumbest 2006 was that the world was getting more stupid, and increasingly we were celebrating stupidity over excellence. And I was completely off base. Completely, no, I, mate, I don't know. I don't know, I don't know where you got that idea from. Saying the word, uh, uh, and then yeah, Friendly Fire was I think 2009. So. They were both compilations of Mm. columns that I was writing for the Sunday newspaper at the time. So while I wrote both those books, I actually didn't write them to be books. In fact, I didn't even compile them into book form. We sent all my columns to an editor who literally just rearranged them. But you had some experience of writing columns. You had some experience of what it is to sit down. I need 800 words. I need Mm. 1,200 words. I've written 15. I need 400. How am I going to get this down? So because I know what it is for me and – how it's affected me. How do you think, like, cause you go out every night, if you're using, if you're doing a new show, you'll be doing the same or very similar version of the same mm. hour every night for 
months as you tour, but to be constantly recreating, reworking, re, you know, figuring out the timing, figuring out the beats, how am I going to say this without too many tangents? How am I going to get to the hard part faster? How am I going to get to make Charlie laugh? How am I going to, you know, when you're doing that for literally hours every single week, did, did you notice that it, you know, changed the way that you wrote, that you created? So I had a real, uh, idea of what I wanted to do with the book. Well, actually, I'll tell you two stories. So the first one is, this is not the book that they commissioned me to write. So, ah, sucked in. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it's recipes. <laughs> in April 2020, uh, I don't know if it, people remember April 2020, but- uh, No one was going anywhere. I lost a uh, month of work in a day and a year yeah. of work in a week. And yeah, uh, we, we you were scrambling, scrambling yeah. for, to say how will I, you know, pay my mortgage? How will I? Yeah, I remember know? speaking to you around that time, yeah. and it was like it's literally a Jackson Brown song. It's like mm. first to come, last to go. It's like who's the first people that fell over? The live entertainment industry. Yeah, so, so the, the last first, people to come back, live entertainment. Industry. First two things that went in Australia when we realised that COVID. See, normally with pandemics, and I was this person. Like I was like, oh, you know, they were saying it was a bit like SARS, and the the, the thing about those diseases is. They mostly affect third world countries. That doesn't make it a good thing. But like in a yeah. place like Australia, we're an island, we're geographically protected, but we're also a wealthy country. We have a you know active like medical system, even though it's been run down, we still do have it compared to the rest of the world. And so ordinarily, these things don't really affect us. And so it was the Australian Grand Prix and the Melbourne International Comedy <sighs> Festival, which were the two first major events yeah. that sort of said to Australia, hang on, yeah. I think this is going to be a yeah. big deal here as well. But we yeah. didn't realize at the time that it was going to be as big a deal and yeah. interrupt our lives as much as it did. So at the time, you were just doing that thing of going, well, how do I replace that money? How do I pay my mortgage? How do I earn a living? And how do I, you know, have you know money to feed the dogs? You know, yeah. Like, yeah, all those usual things that people have to think about. And so for me, I was like, oh, you know, I could write a book, you know, like people have wanted me to write a book for ages again and I just haven't had the time or the inclination to do it but obviously suddenly I have all this time mm. and maybe I'll write a book and there'd been some interest for a couple of years from publishers around doing a book about my podcast philosophy the wisdom learnt from the podcast yeah. that was the that's the sort of thing that yeah. book publishers are interested it's in it's a model that's worked overseas quite well with right. higher profile podcasters it's mm. a, it's a good idea it's a it's yeah. an easy win so I thought Okay, well, that seems like a, a, a thing to do. So I put together a little pitch document of what that might look like and it went out to market and I was actually really pleased that there was a whole bunch of publishers who wanted it. So there was a bit of a bidding war and it ended up like, you know, being a, for a book, yeah. you know, a substantial amount yeah. of money, which was great. Like, you know, some problems solved in my life, you know, quite a relief until I started trying to write it and realised that I thought it was completely unfair to be putting out a book of people's opinions about what was important to them when everything had substantially changed forever. Yeah. Because I felt like, you know, you've been on that podcast and I feel like if I asked you those same questions about what you valued in life and what was important to you pre-pandemic oh, versus man. what post-pandemic, they would be completely different answers. Yeah. And I suddenly realized that it was going to be completely unfair yeah. to publish a book of people's thoughts about the world yeah when the world had substantially changed. And like 16 years later, there's no royalty checks coming in for that. <laughs> it's no longer relevant, you know? So I thought that I 
would do a series of what I embarked on was doing a series of re-interviews where I talked to people yeah. about how they're feeling about the world now, uh-huh. and maybe I could do some. I, com- I thought I was special when you called me. No, uh. you were. I mean, I was trying to get you in my book. That is special. Oh, that's nice. That's the most special yeah, of all, right? You're right yeah. I was going to all this extra effort. You were. To, you know, <laughs> that's the biggest compliment you get. I didn't, I, I didn't re-interview everyone. Come you know to my house. <laughs> you and Julia Gillard. There you go. <laughs> exactly. So, but then I realised that. I, d- I didn't think even it was fair to try and provide answers in a time where I, answers were almost the problem. The idea that people had a set of answers for people was almost the problem. I could see that the rabbit holes that people were going down, it was because in turbulent times, in people in times when people need an explanation for the world, they grasp onto any explanation that makes them feel more comfortable and that can be a really dangerous thing. Yep. And so suddenly this area that I felt comfortable wading into previously suddenly felt like the completely wrong direction to be taking it. And if, if I hadn't needed the money, like, you know, desperately needed the money to survive, I would have given the money back to be honest is the truth. And I was very lucky that the good folks at Alan and Unwin, when I said that to them, I said, I don't think I can write this book and here are the reasons why they said, well, what book do you think you could write? And I said, well, maybe I could write something that is really funny. Yeah about like the last, yeah, what's going on. And so I wanted to do like a comedic take yeah. on, on, you know, on the pandemic times and how the world had changed rather than like it be a take about, you know, I didn't want it to be a traditional comedian's book. I wanted it to be a funny book. Yeah. And so that's a very long winded way of answering your question, which about, which was about tone and voice. Yeah. There was all this material that I had re- originally conceived yeah. as being live on stage stand-up material. Yeah. And I realized that the through line of the book was really, you know, uh, Melbourne International Comedy Festival would have been, April 2020 would have been my 25th year in a row doing okay. a show at the Melbourne International Comedy Festival. You know, Festival. that doesn't happen by accident, mate. That's uh, huge. Well, uh, the way that I like to say it is my career would have been officially so old Leonardo DiCaprio would not date it. That is how old it was. <laughs> and it had been my spine, yeah. my anchor. The one thing that went in my diary every year, I had gone from a kid selling six tickets a night to being Susan Proven, who's the head of the festival, said, no one has sold more tickets to shows at the Melbourne International Comedy Festival than I have. More people have seen me do comedy at that festival than anybody else in the world. And so it's the one thing that goes in my diary first every year. It's the one thing that I thought was always going to be there. It's the thing that I thank everything else for. Everything else that I've got in my life really came from yeah. that festival yeah. and you know, my growth in that festival. So the fact that that was the thing that went away first, I realized that was the start of the story that I wanted to tell. Yeah, yeah. And then I realized eventually as I wrote it over the couple of years that the end of the story was going to be when I finally got to go back to the festival in yeah. April 2022. And then the final chapter in the book now is about the Lismore floods that stopped me from getting back to the festival for another week because just as I was about to get there. Oh, my God. uh, You know, I I, I had to cancel my first week because I got reined in with the floods. And so the narrative of the show was that, but also the book became about the journey back to that show, like the show going away and the journey back to that show. So what I wanted to do was write a book that didn't feel like a traditional comedic memoir. It has some stories about my life. But really, I think what it is, is it's kind of an eight-hour stand-up show. Like, that's what it feels like. It feels like, to me, I wrote it in the same way as I would write my stand-up. I didn't have anywhere to do my stand-up. Yeah. 
but one of the things I talk about in the book, and I think you'll understand this, you know, is that I've trained my brain to every year, like look at my place in the world and the world in general. And I process that through doing my show. Yep. My show every year is really just about what's the world look like yeah. and what's my place in that world at yeah. the moment. That's all my show really is every year. And if you've done that for 25 years, if you've trained your brain to work in a way for 25 years, just because the outlet for that goes away doesn't mean that your brain yeah. stops working like that. But instead yeah. of having an external way to process that, it went internal. And so it turned back in on myself. And the line I use in the book is that, yeah, all my friends were like, this is actually quite nice. I'm binging TV shows. And I'm like, that's nice. I'm binging every decision I've made in my life up until this point. And I don't like the lead character. He is very unsympathetic. He is an anti-hero. I wish they'd replace him with Adam Hills. You know? And so I wanted to put that internal monologue. Yeah. I needed to find a place to put that same thought process. And so I think the book actually has a real stand stand up feel like I want I want it to feel like it's in my voice not in my I am an author voice but really in that this is you know my comedic on stage persona voice I did want to and, and I'm, I'm I'm glad it is that because that's what all those thousands of people uh and, and look I gotta say though, someone asked me the other day it's like oh if you ever if you ever don't want to host a bachelor man I'll do your job I'm like sure man I would I would recommend I would recommend 28 years of work because they don't accidentally give those jobs to anyone. And I'm not trying to big myself up. Like the only reason that you are that person is because you've dedicated your life, dedicated the way you process the world and have a workflow. And as much as you like to joke about how like I never do this or I'm late for that or whatever, you work fucking hard. Like that's what an hour of stand-ups like 10, 15,000 really finely crafted toned words. No, nah, so an hour of stand-up is about uh, seven to 8,000 words. Seven to 8,000 Sorry, there's words. a lot of pause for laughter in that. <laughs> a lot of, hold, lot of hold for laughs. I can tell you the numbers. It's about seven to 8,000 yeah. words. It'll give me 60 to 70 but minutes. But there's not one accidental word in there. That's the thing. Every single fucking and syllable. And the book's about 70,000 words. Yeah. So it's, yeah, it's yeah. a lot more. Yeah. But- and it's written in the same... Like it's, it's that fast. Style. Yeah, it's yeah. as many jokes. Like yeah. I real, there's almost a joke in every pair. Like yeah. you know, real a joke. It's hard when you think it. about it. Like what the, the maths are. Like if you get if you get a chortle every eight to mm. ten seconds, and you get a big house laugh every thirty to forty five, you're okay. Yeah, and that is hard. That old expression, "He's a real laugh a minute." That's a terrible show. <laughs> yeah. If you only get a laugh every minute, you've yeah. got to get more than a laugh no. a minute. So I did want to ask you one thing, which you know. Not everyone listening will have done 25 years. Need more water? You all right? No, no I'm good. No, and how's that coffee? Is it okay? Yeah, it's great. Well, look, as a as someone who's a sober vegan celiac, like I'm the most fucking boring person there is, Audrey, bless her heart, a couple of years back for Christmas, bought us that coffee machine. It's like it's like having an 1100cc Ducati in your kitchen. It's Italian. It's amazing. Yeah, it's good. And, so and it I'll, provides the caffeine molecule, delivers it proper. I can say this now in the safety of this safe space that we have found ourselves in. But uh, so I got up this morning yeah. and I um, had my traditional like two. Now I've got like a uh, just a coffee pod machine, but the pods come from a, a particular cafe in Melbourne that like has great coffee that I like. So I get mine sent from Melbourne too. Yeah. Don't worry. So <laughs> anyway, I had those. And then I was like, oh, oh, it's coming over to your house. And I was like, oh, that's great. I have to go past the actual coffee shop that I like to go, the, the, yeah. like the nice coffee shop. That yeah. It's a little bit out of the way, but it was on the way to your place. So I thought yeah. I'll stop in there. And then when I got here and you offered me a coffee, I was like, 
Look, I have had a lot of coffee already, but I can't go past. Like, I know Osh is very proud of his coffee, and I've got to, like, at least have one, and you're right to be proud of it. It is delicious. I'm, Wal- <laughs> I'm Walter fucking White. I weigh – I don't know if you saw me weigh the beans. Like, I <laughs> – <laughs> I weigh the beans. I refine the grind. There's a thing in that, like, not everyone's going to be doing a Melbourne National Comedy Festival. Not everyone's going to be writing a book. However, there's something you mentioned before, which I'd really like to hear how you do it. You had committed to a massive fucking company who'd probably paid you a healthy advance. And the, the fact is, in Australia, you're really lucky if you earn back your advance. Mm. You're really, if you end up ever getting a royalty check, you're really lucky. I mean, I was even terrified the other yeah. day when. Because, you know, you just hear from people, you know, oh, I sold out my first run and, and yeah. people go, how, how many was that? And there's like 5,000 copies or whatever and that's yeah. like a bestseller. Yeah. And when they told me how many of mine they'd printed as a first run, like, you know, yeah. do you know what I mean? Like I was like, oh, <laughs> yeah. you you think this is going to go really well. I yeah. hope it does. Yeah. <laughs> Got some work to do there, Will. Um but you call you had to call up this massive publisher uh, that had probably been through you are Will Anderson, and yet there was still a meeting about, okay, which slots are we gonna how are we gonna put the pre-Christmas books out? We're gonna, you know, they they're like a business, like anybody, like who's gonna go? It's like a playlist. Mm. And so people have all approved this big payment. And then you had to call them. Tell me about making those kind of calls. You probably had to do it before when you've had to cancel shows or you've had to call a promoter who's really heavily invested. Uh, like they've put a lot of money out to secure a venue and you've had to go, mate, I just can't, I just can't do it. When you have those kind of conversations, those kind of difficult conversations with someone you've committed to, how do you play it? Have you gotten better at it? I mean, I haven't had to do a lot of it is honest, is actually the the real answer because it takes a lot for me to not fulfill a commitment. Yeah. Like it has to be exceptional circumstances. Yeah. And what I found in my life is that if it is exceptional circumstances, people are incredibly understanding. Yeah. So, you know, in this case, there was a very good and compelling reason why I couldn't do what I'd originally agreed to do. And they understood that. And, you know, there's even a point in the future where like, I mean, this is how I work. They were so understanding and they like, you know, I think they really like this new book. Like they, they, yeah. have, they have more confidence in it than I do, really. Like yeah. when I delivered it, I wasn't really sure whether I thought it was good or not. In fact, I, for a long while, was kind of convinced that it wasn't any good. Like it's really taken until now to yeah. like where, you know, some reviews have come out and like, you know, I'm starting to get like people who've read it who've really yeah. like engaged in it and seen things in it that maybe yeah. I didn't even see in it. You know, things yeah. that are in the writing to the reader that I as the author put in there but didn't realise yeah. necessarily that I was putting in there. And seeing people's interpretations of it has been very interesting to me and I can now see what the public – because I kept saying to the publishers, I was like – I because I take great notes. I am an adult when it comes to notes. You note, t- now, note just, notes isn't like I'm remembering what's in the meeting. Notes yeah. in the way that you're describing. Sorry, yes. Notes the way you're describing yes. is like – Feedback. Um, yeah, feedback. Yeah. Like, oh – we're going to have to lose yeah. that whole beat about mm. whatever. And right, and I know you're really proud of those mm. dogs, but no mm. one cares. Yeah. All right. Dogs have to leave the book. And, you know, ultimately, mm. they're the, they've are the they published more books than I have. Yeah. So I have to believe them. I am without ego when it comes to those yeah. things. I really am. If I was convinced that they were wrong, I would certainly, you know, make that argument. Yeah. But if I think that their wisdom and insight is, I'll give you a really practical example of that. So um, Malcolm Knox, who uh, was the editor of the book, who's a brilliant Australian journalist and cricket writer, and, you know, I'm a real fan of his. And so that, you know, I, I admire the, you know, his experience and he's written a lot more books than I have. And so the 
stage show finishes with a story about my first gig back after a year and how I nearly die on the way home from that gig. And that's where the stage show finishes. Whereas he said, you know, the book I'd like it to finish with, you know, this story about the floods and, you know, this should be the ending of the story. And I think that they were amazed how quickly I changed it. All right. You know, I think they were amazed. He goes, I think this would work better. And I was yeah. like, yeah, that I reckon you're right. You know more about books. That does seem to work better. Yeah. Yep. Let's flip that around. Let's do this. Like I crave like someone who knows more about, like I said, I've never really written a book book. This is as close to me writing something that was intended to be a book. Yeah. The other things were intended to be weekly columns that were yeah. compiled into a book. This was at least meant to be a story where, it, you know, it, it was a book. And I, I said to them several times, I said, honestly, if there's anything else here that you, you know, want to change or you yeah. think it's not working, just tell me and I'll, I'll, I'll try to fix it. And so it took me a while when they were saying, no, 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 we, we, we like it. We're excited about yeah. it for me to actually – believe that that was true, yeah. you know, to trust that they, I guess, hopefully know what they're talking you, about. You mentioned something that I did not figure out until I uh, I had to get sober and that was before I got sober, I was just, I, I, like, I'm still full of ego, let's not fucking joke. I'm fucking a selfish, egotistical fuck and I have to arm wrestle it every day. However, before I got sober, I would take any kind of notes or guidance from the people I was working with on television as like the most harsh criticism and like you'd think I'm a fucking piece of shit. And I that's how I reacted in those meetings, those air checks that you have in radio or notes from the network or, or whatever. I was I, – I would do what they said, but it would destroy me. And then it was not an, only when I got like unemployed, divorced – paying rent out of my savings in a foreign country I'm four you know I'm 40 and I'm like okay so my ideas of the best way to play this have not worked I might need this is my best thinking has got me here I might need other people's ideas and how my life changed once I started going look I'm good at all this thing I know I'm good at I've enough self-worth now to understand I'm good at this bit but as far as that, I, I don't know what to do. So I'll just do what you tell me and trust that you want the best for me. And once I started doing that, what do you know? Life got fucking amazing. And in the same way that, you know, when Rick, when Rick Rubin says to you, no, we're going to call the drums over there because they sound a lot better. You don't go, no, Rick Rubin. What do you know? I'm a drummer. I know what to do. He's Rick fucking Rubin. Mm. All right. You do what the producer tells you. You're yeah, not trying to tell, he's not trying to rewrite the song for no, you. No, but the opposite is also true. I was thinking about this. I was asked about this recently. And so it's, it's top of my mind, but I have always been very project-driven. So I will bring to the table and grow on something different to I bring to the table and question everything, something different to the table that I bring in like other projects because I am a bit egoless in regard to those things. I will do whatever it takes to serve the project best. But that sometimes means that like you will have – I remember when we first started doing Gruen that there were like discussions with Andrew Denton who was like my hero – my mentor, like a guy yeah. who I had, like, and a genius, and a guy who yeah. I got into the industry because I watched his TV shows when I was 12, 13, Me 14. And now I'm working, you know, with him on this on this show. Yeah. And we would have arguments where I would say, no, I am not wearing an earpiece. I don't think that that's good for the show. No, we're not going to run tweets at the bottom of the show. I don't think that's good for the show. And to be able to have those moments where I didn't acquiesce to them because I had a sense that for the show, to serve the show best, these yeah. things weren't going to serve the show. 
So in those moments, yeah. I am absolutely willing to have those arguments, even if I bet all the other people in the room at the time were like, who are you to be, yeah. you know, telling Andrew Denton what you think? And I yeah. was like, I'm not telling him for my ego. None of these yeah. things, tweets don't serve my ego. Earpiece doesn't serve my ego. These aren't things that I'm saying because like they serve me. Yeah. These are things I'm saying because I think I am making good decisions on behalf of the show. And so I've got to be willing to do that. Yeah. But if I'm in an area where I don't have that confidence or that expertise and somebody else does and they're willing to give me guidance, then I am very good at you know, taking those notes and, and listening to those things. So I can be both, yeah. you know, like I'm not one or the other. I but- would say that, but I say that you just described two very different things yes. though. And I, I absolutely agree with you when it comes to a project that I am like my podcast, for example, or that, you know, uh, the, the podcast that it was Charlie, thanks for lending him out, uh, <laughs> or any, <laughs> any writing or whatever that I do. If I have a clear or like shows, there's like two shows that I've got kind of out in the, in the world right now, when it comes to holding a creative vision, I'll absolutely do that. I will, I will hear, okay, there's other, okay. So what, what are some other, this is my vision for it. If you don't want this, how can we keep that vision? And I'll happy to do it whatever way you want. So we want to show a picture. Do we want to show it as a full frame? Do we want to show it as a green screen behind me? Am I holding up a picture frame? Like, I don't care how we do it, but we need to have a picture there. This is vital. If you say no picture, then that is not the show. I will absolutely fight for those things. But when it comes to, um, you took a minute and a half to get to, yes, it was a really great story about your dog, but we're just going to need to get that question faster. Like, yeah, you're right. Sorry. So I have two uh, uh, people that I work with really closely in the executive producer, like on both on Gruen and on QE. And they are a fellow by the name of Nick Murray, who is very forthright in his opinions. Yeah. And uh, one, a woman called Polly Connolly, who is one of the- Incredible legend. 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 Australian TV. And, uh, you know, she's been my- confident and yeah. like collaborator for a very long time. And she was Andrew's previous to that, you know, he was lucky enough to, you know, pass her on <laughs> to me when yeah. he, you know, moved on. Like I was lucky enough to be surrounded by such good people. Nick and I, because of the, we fulfilled two very different roles on the show. I'm the creative executive producer and he's like essentially the technical executive mm-hmm. producer. You know, he does all the things that I can't do, you know, the contracts and the meetings and the making sure the cameras and the tech and the set and the, all those sort of things. And I am in charge of the creative process of the show. Yeah. And of course, occasionally each of us have opinions on each other's jobs and that's where you will, you know, yeah. differ. I Early on, you know, sometimes, you know, I get quite frustrated about some of Nick's suggestions because, you know, like when someone can't read your mind, you're like, I'm frustrated (laughs) that you can't see that I know what I'm doing. Like, you know, like, why are you asking this stupid question when clearly I know exactly what I'm trying to achieve and if you just let me try to achieve it, then everything will be fine. Until I realised one day that he's never uh, needed to win an argument. Like he will challenge me on something he will make me justify it. But at the end of the day, even if we disagree at the end of it, if it's a creative decision, he will absolutely always let me have the final say. Yeah. And then suddenly I realize he is the best collaborator you could ever have in your life because it's great to have somebody who makes you justify why you think something should work like that. And it's great to have somebody who says, hey, we need to get this intro shorter. Like, And I'm like, no, we've got to do this. And he goes, no, it's not working. And you're like, oh, you know what, actually – it probably isn't working and I'm going to come up with a creative way to yeah. fix this thing that is not working. And, you know, now I just mm. couldn't, like, I, I'd never, I mean, when, you know, I 
developed QE. I developed it by myself and then took it to Polly and then to Nick yeah. because I was suddenly realized they are, were exactly the sort of people that I needed to, to make the show with. And so to get back to the conversation with the book publishers, yeah. the fact that Kelly um, was so, who is the publisher at Ellen and Unwin, she was so good about the fact that we pivoted and came up with something yeah. else. Like I'm the sort of person who then says, okay, well, you've committed to me. I'm committing to you. Yeah. And that, you know, I've done every publicity thing they've asked me to do around the book. I have like made sure, and that's not, like you said, It. the truth of it is how many copies it sells it doesn't affect my bottom line at all. I'm yeah. never going to, like you said, chances are yeah. I'm never going to like barely pay off the money they've given no. me already. So it doesn't matter if it sells five copies or 50,000 copies. Yeah. It won't really affect me too much. Yeah. The reason I'm out there trying to sell the book and sell as many copies of the book as possible is purely because they kept that faith in me and they put that faith in me and they've supported me. Therefore, yeah. I now support them. And if I ever do write that book about the podcast, you know they're going to get it yeah. because they let me do this other thing. You know, I'm yeah. not going to take it to – I'm not going to like go, oh, someone else has offered me more money for it. I'm yeah. going to take it to them if they want it because yeah. when I needed them to help me, they helped me. So now that's the way I work. Yeah. You know, that's what I've always done and it's certainly why – I mean, even with QE, so my manager, my long-term manager, Kevin White, Token, um, he's been my manager for – 25 years. He's the biggest comedy manager in Australia. He's one of the biggest, you know, comedy agents and TV production. Like, I mean, they produce so many Australian TV shows, everything from Hard Quiz to Rosehaven and The Project. Like, oh, you know, they, like Token have their big, you know, production company as well. I could have made the show with them. Yeah, right. And part of the reason that, you know, I first went to CJZ and to Nick and Paul was that, you know, I work with them on my other show and I like that collaboration and, you know, they're loyal to me and I'm loyal to them and, yeah. you know, I want to collaborate with them. That's how I work, you know. it's yeah. That is what I've liked to do. One thing that you, you did earlier this year, which I was super, super fucking proud that you did it, you did a whole season essentially of improvised shows, mm. which I've – I fucking love that, you know, we mentioned earlier, like 25 years of Melbourne International, Melbourne International Comedy Festival shows, like you don't just show up and do that. Like that is m months of work to refine that material to the point where it is that, that highly, highly kind of tuned moment. To back yourself, to fucking back yourself to go, oh, people are going to pay good money in a time when interest rates are fucked, they're going to leave their house when leaving a house is terrifying. When ticket sales have never been softer anywhere, like it's, no one's no one's leaving the house. Like I'm going to stand up there and not know what I'm going to do. That's fucking awesome fun. I mean, yeah, it's fun. I, I mean, not not so. The shows originally started at the Sydney Comedy Store, which is like the best comedy room in Australia, and. It's a pretty safe space to do something like that. They're, yeah, they're builders improvised shows. They're called What You Talking About, Will? And, um, yeah, people who come along know they're improvised shows. But th this year, yeah, this year, uh, it's, so time means nothing anymore. Okay. But this year, uh, in uh, May, I reckon it was, um, I played uh, the Enmore Theatre in Sydney. Now, for people who don't know the Enmore Theatre in Sydney, it's like, you know, 1,600 seats. It's a biggie. And uh, it was a sold-out show. And... Uh, I'd never done the improvised show in a room that big. 
And, uh, you know, it's a 90-minute show. Like, you know, Fucking hell. Well, I, the, the line I always use, it's the only thing that I say that is the same in each of the shows, is I pr- promise you an hour of quality material no matter how long it takes. <laughs> and <laughs> But realistically, like, you need all 90 minutes. You need 85 minutes of it to be really good, yeah. and you need five minutes of it to be you digging your way out of holes. Yeah. Because there is a point where if it's too good, people don't appreciate how hard it is. Like occasionally you need something to go wrong for people to realize that, you know, oh, hang on. You know, the tightrope walker needs to wobble a little for people to understand that yeah. it's something dangerous is really happening. Yeah. And so I started doing them early on with, uh, they were really trial shows. You know, it was part of my process of developing material. And so I would go in with, not with material, but with like an idea of, oh, I want to talk about you know, whatever. Like I've learned how to play guitar. I want to talk about that, right? I, that is not, I have not, but like just as an example of something. But eventually what I discovered was that the shows wouldn't really work for that. Like trial shows need to be trial shows for material. Improvised shows, I needed to go in with nothing because if my brain was trying to get to something, it wasn't doing what I needed it to do in the moment. People always say, Oh, you must have stuff planned. I said, no, the secret, the trick is to have nothing planned. Because if you have nothing planned, then everything is possible. If you have something planned, your brain is constantly trying to get you to the something that you have planned and it's not in the moment. Like these improvised shows are the ultimate mindfulness because you have to 100% be in the moment. You have to acknowledge what the audience is thinking and feeling. And so often the reaction that you're getting on stage, the laugh, isn't it isn't necessarily even coming from the line itself, but the audience's reaction to the line and how you react to their reaction. Like, you know, you're having a really organic conversation. Like you're, we're all in this it's together. It's a collaborative this experience. This is all yeah. happening right now. Yeah. And, and, and actually collaborative because often I'm speaking to people in the audience and that's where the yeah. Yeah, material is coming from. So people know that it is being made up on the spot. There is no way that it couldn't be anything but made up on the spot, you know. Yeah. I can't afford to plant 20 people in the audience to give me these things. I love I love what you just said because it's something that I've been thinking about a lot um, in the terms of um, anxiety or depression uh, or essentially what I struggle with sometimes is, is, is fear and that if I, if I back away from a thing that frightens me, I'm in a binary moment. I have be terrified or run away. That's my two options. I've got, that's my options. If I'm with the fear or with the discomfort, with the uncomfortable emotion, yes, it sucks for a second and maybe a longer time, but now I've got possibility. Now I can choose mm-hmm. way more things than run away or be terrified. And it is in that where the absolute power of life is. Yeah. And I've, I'm so fucking into that. Uh, because that is that has been the thing that has truly will delivered me from uh, the the depths of mental ill health that I thought I would never ever escape from. So I, it does have a really direct analogy, I think, because when I started doing these shows properly, when they started getting really good, and they are good, like you know, I don't doubt it. Because um, you're there going, wow, just as much as they yeah. are. You're like, fucking, yeah. who said that? Some, sometimes that's, I mean, there is those <laughs> yeah. moments. There's those moments in the show where like, 
my brain has moved so quickly yeah. that I even I am amazed at what came yeah. out. Like I'm yeah. like, oh my god, I've never heard that before either, you know. And yeah. like, you know, and I'll get angry at the audience for not like for them not keeping up as quickly as I am going. Yeah. And like, it, they're fun. They're just so much fun. But the trick was. The, the trick was, because I described them as like it's jumping out of a plane without a parachute and realizing your only option is to learn how to fly on the way down, right? And But you're embracing that. Yeah. The minute I embraced that when I dug a hole, the trick wasn't to go to something that was prepared. The trick was to acknowledge that I was in a hole and then let them watch me dig my way out of the hole because that. Yeah. That's what you're talking about. Like when you talk yeah. about that mental health analogy, right? Yeah. Is going, I know that I am going to be in a hole. And when I am in a hole, it is okay to say to everybody, look at what yeah. just happened. I'm in a hole right now. And then say, let's see if we can get our way out of this hole, you know? Just a little moment away from Will Anderson to say that this podcast is brought to you by you. Uh, if this show brings you value, please consider supporting us whichever way you can with cash, which is amazing, at patreon.com slash osha. Without cash, which is equally amazing, by liking, commenting, subscribing, leaving a review wherever you can, or with even less, just tell another person about the show. That's probably the best thing you can do for us. Text someone, uh, share it in a, in a message or, or link someone to it, or just tell people. Word of mouth is the best possible way to let people know about our show and it's by far the most powerful way you can help us out by bringing more listeners. You support our show in ways that you can't even believe. Speaking of uh, this show, there are plans in place next year to offer extra content. We finally figured out a way that's super simple, literally one click, and we have already funded the production process so we can afford to create the extra content, which is most important. That's the most important part. Um, speaking of affording things, I'm going to play some ads right now. So we'll be back in a jiffy. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is PlushCare. PlushCare is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition smart bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. What you just said about oh, fuck, I'm in a hole, rather than saying, hey, look over here, there's no hole. Mm. Oh, I'm in a hole. Watch me as I dig myself out. To have a political system that did not penalise leaders for saying that mm. would change the fucking world. Yet we penalise our leaders, whoever's in charge, anyone, mm. corporate leader, CEO, principal, we penalise anyone for acknowledging 
the only people that tend to acknowledge proper mistakes are, 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 are mumbly footballers who've, you know, on Mad Tuesday. Oh, yeah, I'm sorry. Brought so disrespect on the club. I think what you say is, is, is absolutely right. And it's actually, funnily enough, a bit of a theme that I explore in the book, which is the idea of that we demand simple answers to complex questions mm -hmm. and then we get disappointed when there isn't actually a simple answer to that complex question. You know, can you guarantee that interest rates, well, you, yeah, that's the kind of question that a politician gets asked on the campaign trail, right? Yeah. Can you guarantee this? Now, it's ridiculous to make them guarantee it because no one can guarantee it. Yeah. And then when they do guarantee it and it doesn't happen, they're like, well, look at you. You got it wrong. No child will be living in poverty by no. 1990. It's an ambition, <laughs> yeah. but it's not something that you can guarantee. Yeah. And then we condemn these people for – and then this is a message that we've been taught by advertising, that there are simple solutions to complex problems. But it is, a, it is really something that – has been the major thing during the pandemic is like, I mean, originally it was religions. Here are your simple solutions to the complex problem that is life. And as we've gone away from religions, those have been, you know, filled by spirituality or alternative thinking or yeah. Jordan Peterson's 12 rules for life or whatever. The idea that Sorry. there is a set of <laughs> rules yeah. that if you follow those rules, then, and I understand that. When things are complex and people want explanations, they would love to, the idea. It's really comforting to know that someone can fix everything, that there is a simple solution that, you know, we talk about binaries in terms of sex, sexuality, and gender all the time. Like non-binary is a term we hear all the time in, re in regard to those things, but non-binary is what the entire world should be in regard to our thinking. Like things are not traditionally black or white. They are various shades of gray. And when we go into things expecting them to be like, I mean, the COVID discussion, that's what it came down to so often. Like on both sides, really, there was this idea of like that there was an all or nothing approach, that one thing was, you know, that that complete lockdown was a solution without complications or that like everybody being out and about and not wearing masks or, you know, not taking vaccines was – neither of those things are true, right? No. The idea that we're now retrospectively judging lockdowns because there were other complications of lockdowns, yes, of course there are. Taking kids out of school and not letting them see their friends and all those things, they were always going to be complications of it. You were taking a risk and reward scenario at the time about mm. whether what doing one thing outweighed the effects of the other thing. And a lot of people were guessing. They were using the best information yeah. they had at the time. Oh, oh, they told us at the start that it was, you know, you, you shouldn't touch metal and blah, blah, blah. They got yeah. it wrong. Yeah, they got it wrong because the information they had at the time yeah. was indicating that was the case. And when they had more information, oh, they changed their mind. You can't trust them. They didn't change their mind. They got more information. And then with that information, they were able to give you a more accurate answer of what it might be. Oh, the vaccines you didn't work in the way they said they were going to work. Well, that's not even true, by the way. Yeah. They never claimed what you're saying that they claimed. Yeah. But- the disease has changed. Yeah. So the vaccines need to change and the effect of them changes as well. All these things are very complicated. None of them are binary. None of them are black or white. And you see this in most political decisions. The, the, thing, the idea that politicians get accused of, oh, he backflipped. Good. If there's a good reason for the backflip, yeah. if more information has come in. Yeah. Yeah. You know, in Australia at the moment, there's a debate over these, what they call the stage three tax cuts. And for people who are you know, listening who aren't from Australia, that is basically the previous government proposed to give a whole bunch of tax cuts to the wealthiest people in society. And obviously since then, uh, the, the government has changed, but the government that has come in 
basically said that they were still going to implement those tax cuts. They're not meant to come in again for another year still, but the economic conditions have changed substantially and there is pressure on that government to do away with those tax cuts. Like it's not the time to give that money to the richest in society. It's time to support the poorest in society in that regard. So you know that the government doesn't want to do it because they don't want to be accused of backflipping, of breaking a promise. But to me, doing the right thing, the the conditions have changed. You are making a decision that is more appropriate for the, and yet we get caught in this idea of that that's a backflip. You said one thing and now you're saying something, we can't trust you anymore. That's ridiculous to me. You should be able to trust them more because they are now looking at the new conditions and making a better decision for those conditions. So I agree with you entirely. The idea that you can acknowledge that, oh, we weren't in a hole before. But guess what? I'm in a hole now. Yeah. And we've got to dig our way out of the hole. This yeah. is how I'm going to dig my way out of the hole. All we've got is shovels. Yeah. Um, we're going to have to invent ladders and I'm going to have to con- get enough people together to invent and then convince you that using a ladder is the best way that we can do this. Because we know what shovels do mm. and shovels just get us further and we don't want to yeah. be in a hole. So come with me, guys, because it's not going to change from the top. It's, it'll only change when the community go, okay, well, we will reward you by voting you back in. You know, that's the only, at the moment, that's how political system, unfortunately, yeah. that's how the conversation works. Once every three years, we get to have a say. Um, that is the only way that the community will work. Do I have hope that it'll happen? No, but it'd be yeah. nice. You but know? we've also got to stop believing. We have a responsibility as consumers to stop believing that there are simple answers to no. complex problems. But no. unfortunately, I don't think we are going to do that. I think it's intrinsic to us that, like, as human beings, that we crave yeah. simple answers to complex problems. So it's a chicken or the egg thing, isn't it, in regard to – sorry, that's probably offensive to a vegan. It's a uh... – Mate, I, I don't know if you – you met my wife upstairs uh, and, I'm, you know, anyone anyone from the Pacific Islands, uh, they are the technical opposite of a vegan. Like, does it move? We'll eat it. We don't – you know, our agricultural system is very, very reliant on weather and fuck me, didn't that last storm take everything out? So hello – you know? I, I, but I do think that you know, there is an element of don't play, don't hate the player, hate the game. Yeah. Like the game is rigged against us. Yeah. You know, we have particularly in this modern world of like information and technology, you have powerful algorithms. Like I mean, you know, advertising companies and like internet companies, social media companies employ more psychologists than are out in the wild in the rest of society. Jesus so Christ. the dice is stacked against us, all the best minds in the world are working together to subtly manipulate us into making decisions, and we are just a solo person. So, so often, and particularly, like, I I talk a lot about conspiracy theories and how people get sucked down rabbit holes in the book, and I have a lot of empathy for that because you're just one person, and you, a lot of people don't realize that if you click on one video... Then, so, like, you know, people will say, well, my entire Facebook feed says that Dr. Fauci caused COVID or whatever it might be. Yeah. And you're like, yeah, because you clicked on a couple of videos and you let something roll through and then suddenly the algorithm started serving you more and more yeah. of the same stuff. And yes, like in your world, if you're not somebody like me who, you know, reads about these things and consumes media all day Questions long everything. Tries to pick it apart. <laughs> yeah. Then, you yeah. know, in the two hours a day yeah. you have, like, I mean, we're so judgmental often about the way that people receive information. Yeah. But it's very luxurious to be a person who thinks and talks about these things all day long, right? Yeah. Like most people don't have that luxury. They go to their job 
you know, yeah. all day long. And then they have half an hour a day where they're like flicking on their Instagram or their Twitter or their TikTok and they're getting whatever messages they're getting out of that. Yeah. And they form their opinion about the world based on, you know, what they're seeing and what they're being fed. And they're not thinking, oh, I'm being fed, you know, a particular view of the world through an algorithm that wants me to spend more time online because that's all it is. Yeah. These social media companies are set up to get you to spend more time on the social media company. Their entire business model is, how can I get you to spend more time watching this video, reading this article? So the way they do that is they identify what they believe you are most interested in and present it in the most provocative fashion to get you to read it. And so, of course, if you're only being served those headlines or those click-throughs, you know, that that Mm. want to sensationalize things and you're not reading the article, you're just flicking through, you don't know that your opinion is being subtly adjusted day by day to the point where you are more likely to believe that thing that is not true. So we, we often end up hating the person who believes the dumb thing without going, this is, it's the fucking system that has been set up that is like the incentive is to mislead these people, you know? Like, yes, as consumers, we have to be more active in the media we consume and how we consume it and, Mm -hmm. you know, verifying whether it's true or not. But but the truth is that the entire system is set up against us, against us being able to do that. And you are just, yeah, you're the boy pissing into the ocean hoping you can turn back the tide. (laughs) What you said before, and, you know, we both came at it from different angles, was if you're present in the moment, and you look for more than two options, you're already ahead. Of, if you, you're already ahead of the game. If you are present in the moment enough to go, I should hate this part of our community because I see a headline about this or I'm angry now and therefore I've got to do that. If you can ask yourself, well, what else is there? Then you're already starting to shift and look for, you know, different different aspects and different ways uh, around yeah. it, which is what nature does. You know, I was talking about this the other day. There's no fucking cell of any like plants, for example. There's no cell of any plant's new growth that does not get created in response to its environment. If a tree grows and then a house gets built next to it, the tree will move. Mm. Tree doesn't go, fuck you, house. Tree just goes, okay. Like that's nature. Nature is to adjust to your obstacles. Nature is to adjust to your environment. Nature is to go, well, I was going this way. I guess I'll go that way. Look at any vine. Look at water. Look how water is destroying the fucking house we're sitting in. There's a very moldy room. Water doesn't give a fuck, right? Like, but that's water looking for the best pathway through. It is, you know, it's against nature. It's like that nature moves with obstacles. And to think that we as humans can, you know, be in denial over obstacles, no. Adjustment is what nature is and adaptation is what nature is. And for me, leaning into that and embracing that is there's so much peace in that because then you can let go of this idea of it has to be perfect. Perfect doesn't exist in nature ever. Mm. It's Yeah. And look, uh, you know, perfect. There would have been a period of time early in my life where I would have like if someone, I would have described myself as a perfectionist, right? Mm. Until I realized that that thought just holds you back. And again, to like, I mean, to use the improvised shows as a bit of an example of that, because I think they are a good example of that. And I think it's why I like them so much is that they teach me a lot. You know, that's yeah. the, the real secret to them is why I was able to embrace them as yeah. much as that I've embraced them is that I learn a lot from them about yeah. myself. You know, I'm testing myself, I'm testing my brain, but I'm also like, it is the embrace of the idea that it's not going to be perfect. You know, really? like I know that it's not all going to go well. As soon as I was fine with that, 
as soon as I was fine that it wasn't going to be perfect, suddenly it was much better than it was ever going to be. That was the idea that it needed to be perfect that was holding me back in the first place, right? I love you, And it was never going to be perfect. I love you so much. Thanks for making the time. Thanks for coming over to my (laughs) house, mate. My pleasure. You're amazing. (laughs) (laughs) And ladies and gentlemen, that was Will Anderson. You can find Will on Instagram, 1L, official Will Anderson. His latest book is called I'm Not Fine, Thanks. And it's wherever you get your books. The perfect Christmas present for the person who loves Gruen or likes to read or likes life. If you're in Sydney, I'll see you this afternoon at the Bondi Bowling Club with Allegra Spender, Politics in the Pub, Bolo. I think it kicks off at 6pm. You can find all the stuff on Allegra's website. Uh, Keep your eyes out for ticket links. Those shows in Sydney and Melbourne hopefully will be on sale before the end of this week or the start of next week. Got a jet. It's the first weekend of December, which means we are now going to put up our Christmas tree. Happy trails. I'll see you Wednesday. Thank you very much to everyone that helped me make the show. Uh, Thanks to Bree Steele on uh, research. Mike Mills, also known as Toe Hider for making all the music, Andy Ma on audio and video post-production, and Rachel Barrett, who's the executive producer of The Lot and makes all the trains keep rolling on time. She's amazing. Until I see you on Wednesday, just keep breathing and we'll be fine. <laughs> Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com trip for free shipping and 365-day returns.